This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. The most recent edition of the Bay Observer touches on a very sensitive issue that uh, both people of the Waterfront Trust and uh, the city of Hamilton seem to be wanting to shy away from these days. They've uh, both hired law firms and basically said, well, talk to our lawyers, and the lawyers don't want to talk about this yet. But what we do know, according to the most recent edition of the uh, Bay Observer, the owners of Sarkoa, the waterfront restaurant, have paid approximately $972,000 in rent and property taxes and utilities. So they say, this, this is one of their concerns, that they are trying to stay current with the money. Notwithstanding that, of course, they got a order written out to close down the other day, and of course it's, it's going to get ugly. John Best is the uh, publisher of the Bay Observer. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Good morning, John. How are you today? Well, thank you, Bill. Uh, boy, this uh, this gets messier and messier the more stones you overturn on this. Uh, you have been covering this story for years now. I think the first uh, expose about Waterfront Trust and some of the financial concerns there goes back over 10 years now. Uh, people are starting to pay attention now. What have, What's the latest? What have you found out? Well, I mean, found out. I mean, it's all there. It's, it's, it's hiding in plain sight. Uh, uh, the, the notice that uh, was posted uh, when uh, when Sarkoa was evicted, listed uh, the payments that they had made, and uh, I, you know, I went through the sheet when I heard they'd been evicted. I thought, well, you know, they're behind on their rent and so on and so forth. And yes, they are to a degree, but then you look at the sheet and you realize that over the last three years, these guys have paid nearly a million dollars to the Waterfront Trust. And, uh, yes, they suspended payments in 2015 for a few months when the uh, the noise thing sort of blew up and, and they were unable to continue having, uh, you know, the concerts and music on the patio. But, but then they resumed payment uh, from 2015 right up until literally uh, June of this year. They, uh, they tried to make their June payment, but by that time the eviction had already uh, taken place. So the the amount owing, uh, according to uh, the Waterfront Trust, is now about $220,000. But they paid a million dollars. So by my math, uh, you know, if there's arrears, and there are, uh, it's about uh, 20%. But the the impression that was kind of created was that they were, you know, hadn't paid anything or were deeply in arrears. And really, it, it all stems back to that suspension of payments for a period during 2015 and even then uh, the courts uh, were involved and and a, and a kind of settlement was reached where Sarcoa would pay 3000 a month into an escrow account and then depending on how the rent issue got sorted out they'd either that money would either go to the waterfront trust or it would be returned to Sarcoa so they were even essentially making some progress on the arrears which it paints a different picture from what was told to us or maybe intimated to us uh, when this notice went up on the door there. And it was that basically these guys are bad tenants. They're not paying their bills. Uh, they may not be paying them as, as timely as, as they would like, and they, but, but there is payment going back and forth here. And that, that's, that, that paints a different picture from what we've been told and, and, and what we were uh, assuming was, was the problem here is that these guys uh, were just sitting there and, and not looking after their responsibilities. Now, uh, and, and again, by the way, you know, we've reached out to Mr. Destro, and I know others have tried to as well, and uh, he feels uneasy about going public about this too since it's going to go into court. But in a related story, John, as they say in the business, uh, is the Waterfront Trust itself. And, and of course, their financial woes 
Uh, and again, they seem to be pinning that on the fact that, well, you know what, we would be in fine shape except for Sarkoa. Uh, what you wrote in the, the Bay Observer this, uh, this month indicates that's not necessarily so. Well, it's not entirely so. I mean, clearly there's, there's approximately 220,000 that they certainly could have used. But uh, on the other hand, uh, the amount of money that the Waterfront Trust owes the city for taxes is in the 325000 range. And in fact, it was almost half a million up until sometime in the last few weeks when a, when a payment was made that reduced it to three twenty-five. When I look at their financials, I have no idea where they'd get that kind of money, to be quite honest, $175,000. I have no idea where that cash would come from. When you look at their balance sheet, there's, uh, you know, they're, they're broke. So <laughs> that's, uh, that'll be a, an interesting one, you know, in some subsequent year if we ever get a look at those financial statements. Well, and of course, the Waterfront Trust has lost their uh, their charitable status. And the, the head-scratcher for me there is I'm surprised they had it in the first place, but be that as it might, uh, we need to back up a little bit because there's there's some history to this thing as to why the Waterfront Trust is where it is and, and, and some of the questions around this. And, and since we're talking about some of the financial questions, I guess, about the trust itself, John, uh, you know, we have to ask ourselves whether or not the trust should even still be in existence. Because historically, the thumbnail answer to that is uh, uh, in a financial settlement with the federal government years ago about water lots and, and who owns what at the at the waterfront, uh, there was a, an amount of money that was, was given there, but it was put in trust. And they struck this, this waterfront trust basically to handle that money. But as you've reported in the Bay Observer, it, that money's long gone. So why, why is the trust still there? Yeah, I mean, to me, a trust is, uh, you know, the, the most important thing for any trust is that there actually be some funds. Um, a trust is, is a, a manage, a, a, you know, it's, it's to manage funds and disperse them for some purpose. Uh, you know, and, and in the early going, uh, uh, I would, uh, and, and even the, uh, the, the Canada Revenue acknowledged that when they were building trails and, uh, you know, starting out, uh, that during that first five or six years, they, they were entitled to be considered a charity. The reason they got their charitable status lifted the first time was, was not because their activities didn't qualify. It was because they didn't file any financial statements for five years. Uh, but what the CRA ended up saying, and, and I had a copy of the letter that they wrote, they, uh, they said that, you know, after that, uh, after the money was all gone uh, for the trails, they then were really engaging in largely commercial activity, running restaurants and so on. And at that point, they ceased to qualify as a uh, as a uh, charitable uh, trust. So that's and and so they uh, by agreement actually they they annulled. And the annulment aspect is important. The first time they had it revoked. Um, the second time they had it annulled. And the the difference is that. With annulment, uh, there's no going back to past donations and rendering them uh, ineligible. So it's really just kind of a frozen in time situation. We won't go back uh, over your books, but uh, from this moment on, you're no longer a charitable uh, organization. And I know in the past, John, you have been chastised by certain members of council and and other media in some situations uh, for going after and, and, and trying to shed some light on what's going on with the Waterfront Trust. But, but there's a, a question of diligence here. Uh, I, I Listen, I like the people there. Many of them are former city employees. I know many of them. Uh, they're great workers. They're nice people. 
Uh, I don't know too many of the people that actually sit on the board there, although there are two city councilors that are currently sitting on the board, as there always have been. This is not about who they are. This is about why they are there and, and how they do their business. And and I think I think it's legitimate. I mean, this is city money that's going into this project now, John, and we, I think, have a right to ask these kinds of questions about how this money is being spent. Well, and, and to be honest, my big concern um, from the beginning, uh, of course, the, the money and uh, the lack of transparency and all of those things are, are should be a matter of concern, but... My my real concern is having this organization. You're trying to create a culture within a city government, and it's tough enough to do uh, where, you know, you have councillors that are there forever, uh, staff that are there forever, and you, you, you get a, you know, it's hard to maintain any kind of discipline and, and standards of, uh, of conduct. Uh, tough enough, but then if you have an organization like this that, over the years, uh, thumbed its nose when it, you know, covered up uh, accidents and lawsuits and uh, refused to cooperate with the city, uh, undertook construction projects without getting building permits, even when they were issued stop work orders. I mean, to me, that that has a tremendously bad effect on on the entire city uh, staff, because why should I play by the rules when this organization that's protected by by a couple of councillors can pretty much do anything it wants, can break the rules. And to me, that, that's that been as big a concern as the actual money going out the door problem. Well, and again, we get into that idea about transparency, and that's one thing. But, but you know, the thing here is, is the double standard is, is what really sticks out to me, and I think to an awful lot of people now as they start to look at what's going on here. And, and there are councillors who, by the way, are very diligent. Uh, whether it's about, you know, the, the cost of street sweepers, that goes back a few years ago. Maybe the most blatant example was was Heckvi, of course, the board that looked after the entertainment facilities that are owned by the city. After uh, a great deal of consternation about how they did their business, they eventually blew up that whole board and said, fine, we're not going to do this anymore. Yet Waterfront Trust, story after story after story, when these things finally do come to people's attention, they get a pass from city council. They say, no, these guys are good. They're fine. They're just leave them alone. And, and by the way, here's more money. I, I, I don't get that. That just seems like there's two sets of rules here. Well, that's exactly it. And I mean, and, and you mentioned HECFI. I mean, not so much in its later years. In its later years, I think HECFI's biggest problem was that the, the, the economic model simply didn't work. But in the early days, and, and you'll remember this, uh, this is before you were even on council, that organization was nothing but a playpen for certain councillors who were on the board. Uh, you know, it was uh, it was just a chance to strut around and look like you're in business, and uh, th- that was a terribly politicized organization, especially in its early going. And and to some degree, that's the same thing with the Waterfront Trust. Uh, I just think it's bad when you're you know you're trying to to have a uh, a professional civil service uh, in our city. And, and you've got this organization, and I can't see where it's doing anything. I know some of its supporters say, well, we would have never been able to achieve all this uh, if we'd been operating through the normal strictures of municipal government. I see no evidence of that, uh, no evidence whatsoever. I mean, uh, it was city staff that built the waterfront trails from Princess Point over to, uh, uh, over to the uh, downtown area at the bottom of James Street. Uh, was city staff that, that did the original uh, Confederation Park trails. 
So I, I don't see any evidence that, you know, we had to form a, they keep calling it an arm's-length organization. It's only an arm's-length organization when it's not in financial trouble. Otherwise, it's very much a creature of the city. So where's this going to go? I, I, I mean, clearly there doesn't seem to be much of an appetite on city council to do much about this right now. Uh, this Sarkoa thing is is in the courts, and of course there's a bigger issue here, of course, which is waterfront development in itself, uh, about the grand plan that the city has for those areas, especially around Piers uh, 7 and 8. Uh, and of course the Waterfront Trust, we're told, is involved in that. Uh, Mr. Destro at one point, uh, when he was still talking to us before they put the notice on the, on his restaurant there, suggested uh, that he was under the impression that you know, they wanted him out of there because they had another plan for that development and now or that piece of land. And now we're told that there's great interest. Uh, Leuna, I think, has, has piped up and said they'd be interested in running something there and probably some other ones as well. So you've you got to wonder if there are subtexts to an awful lot of what's going on here. Well, I've I've heard that as well, and uh, you know, I guess I guess in the fullness of time, we'll we'll see who ends up uh, running those properties. But if it is Layuna or another developer, once again, it begs the question: of Why do we have a waterfront trust if if even the land that they now occupy is is possibly up for grabs? Then what's left? Uh, <laughs> you know, the city maintains the existing trail system. Once they're built, they're turned over to the city. There just seems to be no reason for this at all. And uh, in the meantime, we've got this kind of a festering sore, if you will, that, that just saps uh, money. I mean, you know, it's easy to, you know, sort of predict how lawsuits will turn out. But let's, if the city loses this thing with Sarcoa, and, and I note that they've already hired um, a very expensive legal firm, and they and even their 2015 statements indicate that well over a hundred thousand dollars has gone into legal fees. They do not have that money. They they don't have that kind of cash. They're not generating that kind of cash to pay those even just the legal fees. So I'm assuming that the city is already ponying up for this thing. Well, if not, who then who? I mean, some you you, you know it's the city, although they may not admit it at this stage right now. But, I mean, they're, they're funding the, the, the Waterfront Trust as it is, John. Like you say, the money that was granted to the city from the federal government, from that settlement, is long gone. They come to the city every year and say, by the way, this is what we're doing. They're, they're acting like a city department. Why not just roll it into public works? Well, uh, right now they're getting, because you wouldn't pay public works a commission. Uh, you, they'd simply do the work at, at, at their cost. Um, Waterfront Trust is able to get these various projects and and they receive a commission uh, based on the value of the contract. So it's a it's a way of giving money to the waterfront trust without, uh, well, for one thing, without ever coming in, in front of council for permission. Like nobody's ever put something in front of council that said, you know, we're, will you please approve these arrangements? So you know, it, it it's just the whole thing is fuzzy. Uh, when they do appear in front of council, it's always uh, to use a, a term you're familiar with always a walk-on, you know, so there's never something that, you know, counselors can take home for a week and look at and try to understand. It's all, you know, dog and pony show, last minute, rah-rah from the counselors that are supporting it or on the board. It's just never been a straight kind of relationship. All I would like to see is for them to have the same level of scrutiny as, as every other city department has. 
Uh, and again, I go back to the, to the statements that we make, and we hear this all the time during budget sessions uh, when city council is doing their darndest to try to be diligent, you know, and save the taxpayers a buck every buck that they possibly can. And some of these departments come forward, and of course, and they they get grilled by city councilors. Uh, I don't see that at the Waterfront Trust, and I'm just suggesting they should be ruled and 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 under the same guise and the same set of rules as everybody else. And uh, it, uh, well, we'll see if city council is going to respond to that. Uh, we got to. I re- doubt if they could withstand being under the same rules as everybody else. Uh, cause I well, then that be tells obvious. you something too, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it'd be obvious that they really shouldn't exist at all. John Best, publisher of the Bay Observer. John, thanks as always for this. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Bill. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. North Korea threatens retaliation against the United States after tough sanctions were imposed by a United Nations Security Council uh, motion that passed uh, unanimously, as a matter of fact, the other day. Uh, North Korea says that they will bolster its arsenal instead of cutting back. What is the imminent threat, and uh, how seriously is it being taken? Well, let's uh, talk to Stephanie Carvin about that, Assistant Professor of International Affairs at Carleton University. Stephanie, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Hey, great to be on. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about what's been going on here. This is uh, front-page news. It's front of mind for an awful lot of, of, of people right now because of what's happening. I think, as you and I discussed a couple of weeks ago, uh, the North Korean problem was was... I, I think probably given short shrift in past because nobody thought, well, look, they can do all they want with their nuclear program. But, you know, they, they were even writing editorial cartoons about this and saying, well, they'll have to put it in a boat to get it across to the uh, North American continent. Now they're taking them seriously and, and uh, things are ramping up. Uh, uh, should we be more concerned than ever because of what North Korea is saying? Um, well, there's a lot to unpack with what's happened in the last couple of weeks. I agree. So, yes, you're right. Um, they have uh, what is concerning, I think, to most people is the level of development that they have shown with regards to their uh, ability to have uh, stable missiles that can um, that are now intercontinental. They never had those before. So we've seen in the last couple of months, Korea basically come out with um, intercontinental ballistic missiles that are capable of uh, having a nuclear warhead on them. And, and that's a concern because they can now hit the United States and not just Hawaii, but actually the continental uh, United States and fly over much of Canada as well. So, you know, that's not good news for us either. Um, and in result of the, uh, as a result of these new tests, there was a UN Security Council resolution that was passed 15 nothing, and that's actually very rare these days that normally China abstains or Russia abstains at the very least. But we have a 15 nothing resolution, which basically condemns uh, the, um, what North Korea has done. And actually, uh, we're now seeing sanctions put on the regime as well. And those sanctions are geared at stopping North Korea from getting uh, what we call hard currency. Uh, so basically, U.S. dollars, euros. Um, those kinds of currencies for which it can then use to actually procure technology to even further its nuclear missile program uh, further. So that's basically everything that's happened in the last couple of weeks. And now, of course, yes, we have North Korea has come out and basically said we're going to retaliate a thousandfold. Uh, you know, we're all quaking in our boots here um, for, for these new sanctions that have been put in place. Um for me personally, I'm not losing sleep over North Korea. I still don't believe it is our, or even the United States' preeminent security threat. I think there's a lot more uh, problems in the region. Um, basically, I don't really think there's that much to worry about right away. 
let's let's talk about the dynamic and the players here, and and maybe the sanctions. Maybe we should start with because you touched on that and and the UN resolution. Uh, that is significant. Uh, the measures uh, I'm told anyway uh, could uh, lop off about a one billion dollars annually off North Korea's uh, export revenue of three billion. Uh, you know, when you cut anything like that by one third, it's going to have an impact on your economy. Right. And so an early report suggests that, you know, one of the things targeted by these sanctions, which is seafood, uh, North Korea can't, I don't know who would want to really eat North Korean seafood, but, you know, there you have it, um, that basically North Korean seafood is, is not going to be able to be exported to get that, again, that hard currency that it can use to actually buy the components that it needs. And in this particular case, uh, we apparently, um, the price of seafood in North Korea has dropped by uh, two thirds. Basically, it's selling at one-third of what it used to because they know they can't sell it and they have all this seafood lying around. So, uh, yeah, so it, it, it is going to hurt North Korea. But, you know, we have to think of it as a state with one goal in mind, and that is regime survival, right? So, it, you know, it's going to bear the brunt of these sanctions. It, it, you know, North Korea has proven time and time again that a, it, it's hap- you know, it, it will more than happily bear the financial costs of sanctions. Um, in order to continue to have its nuclear program. And further, it has also shown that it's extremely crafty at getting around sanctions. So uh, those two things, I think, are very important here. Well, the regime may happily bear the consequences of this. I'm not so sure the people will happily bear that, but they have no choice, do they? No, not really. And, um, you know, the, the people haven't risen up before. There's no reason to believe they will anytime soon. Um, you know, there, you know, it, it, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put a lot of stock in that in terms of, um, uh, I mean, look, anything can happen, right? Any, absolutely anything can happen. It's hard to always know what those tipping points are, but, you know, um, again, uh, the people seem to be behind the idea that, you know, whether they're brainwashed or not, or, um, that, you know, regime survival is the preeminent national interest of North Korea. Yeah, and, and I, I feel the same as you do about this. You never say never. I, I don't think it's imminent. I don't think there's much of a chance of, of an uprising in North Korea. But, you know, we said the same thing about Libya at one time and, and other uh, regimes, too, which which ultimately fell. And uh, who knows what's going to happen. But that's not that's not something that's on anybody's radar at this stage. I think what the U.S. finally, I think, has come to the realization, Stephanie, is they've got to deal with the, this issue here and now. Uh, in in the reality of what's going on here. What about the military threat? Because, I mean, the first statement we heard from, well, Donald Trump, if you can take any of his tweets seriously, but also from <laughs> UN uh, Secretary Haley, of course, uh, who's the U.S. representative on the Security Council, suggesting that maybe the time for diplomacy is over. That only leaves one other option. Right. So, uh, well, two things there. First of all, the interesting case of Libya, I mean, it's just interesting that you pointed that out. Libya actually gave up its nuclear weapons program, and it got invaded. Um, and I think North Korea and, and Iraq basically gave up its nuclear weapons program and it got invaded. I think North Korea has taken looked at these lessons of the past and been like, hmm, every, all of these countries that seem to have given up their nuclear program seem to have been invaded. So, um, you know, you have to think that it, it's, it, it may be a regime that we don't understand, but they're not foolish. And they learn the lessons of history and they take the lessons that they want. And that might be one of them. Uh, with regards to a, a war, I, I really hope, that, I mean, I, you have to assume that, you know, they're saying all options on the table, and I do take them at their word when they say that. Uh, I believe war with North Korea would be an absolute disaster. Um, it is a it is a nuclear state now. Um, you know, targeting nuclear facilities is always risky at the best of times. It would create a wave 
of uh, human refugees into China and South Korea, something that the Chinese, the Chinese government is desperate to prevent. It's actually one of their, I would say, one of China's preeminent foreign policy goals is to prevent a uh, humanitarian disaster that would be, uh, again, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people trying to cross into China to escape a collapsing regime, whether that's because the regime itself is collapsing or because there is some kind of war there. I mean, we shouldn't underestimate the bloodshed that would that would come from this. It would be extremely, extremely dangerous to do that. Um, and it's really hard to see any good options here, I mean, other than some kind of diplomacy. What, what concerns me about the new sanctions, if anything, North Korea is saying it's going to retaliate. Well, I don't think it's going to retaliate in terms of a nuclear strike. I don't, you know, it only has a few weapons. And if your interest is, nuclear, is regime survival, why would you do the one thing that's going to guarantee that you're basically going to uh, be exterminated by a massive nuclear retaliation? What concerns me is that if North Korea can't get cash legitimately, it's going to continue to resort to illegitimate means. And then what would happen is I think you could see it, for example, start to engage in um, nuclear proliferation activities. So trying to sell nuclear technology or nuclear material to states or entities that uh, are also unfriendly to the West, creating a, a much bigger kind of nuclear proliferation problem in order to get that hard currency. That, I think, is actually more of a risk here, further proliferation, rather than any kind of nuclear strike. But I do worry that a actual war with North Korea is, is I don't know, it, to me it just seems like we haven't tried all options yet, and that is a very dramatic option with extraordinarily serious consequences. And I, I just hope that Donald Trump has good people advising him on this as to how serious the consequence it would actually be. Of course, the counterpoint to that is that uh, you know, the, any sane person would not go to war, you know, because of, of the dire consequences that would be inflicted upon North Korea. But they say, well, this is not a guy who who revels in common sense. Kim Jong Un is 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 a madman. They say, and 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 he he'll push the button at any time. And is and and. and is is there some concern about that? That that look at this guy, despite what common sense indicates, and despite the consequences, might do something rash. Um, I think if you look at the writings of almost every single credible North Korean expert, they all agree that the regime is rational. And rationality, I mean, to us, it seems crazy that like yeah, it seems absolutely crazy. But if you, rationality is the ability to formulate a goal and then calculate the means to achieve it. And that's basically what rationality is. And so if North Korea's number one goal is regime survival, we shouldn't, and, and it is rational in, 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 it, in its uh, basically decision-making processes, I don't think we should worry about North Korea, again, hitting that nuclear button. Because, again, if your number one goal is regime survival, you are not going to do the one thing that is going to guarantee that you are going to basically be eliminated, which is to fire a nuclear weapon. Nuclear, uh, North Korea, what it has essentially done is created a deterrent. And we're not happy about that at all. But at the end of the day, um, it, 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 I guess I guess the concern is that now it feels they might be able to bully its neighbors because the retaliation will be uh, a little bit harder on North Korea. But at the end of the day, I don't. I think saying that Kim Jong Un is crazy is not a useful framework for thinking about some of the very hard decisions that are going to have to be made in the next couple of weeks. Having said that, though, we have to talk about rational thinking, I guess, on the other side of this coin, too. Oh, uh, the story that we heard over the weekend uh, is that uh, the, at one point, uh, the White House was considering preemptive military action against North Korea. Now, apparently somebody talked somebody off the wall and said, no, that's not the way we're going to go. But the fact that that was even on the table is a little frightening. 
yeah, um, I like I said, I'm not sure Donald Trump. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think you know, uh, I'm not sure that there is the kind of rationality on that side. I think you're probably right. My hope is that um, it, it's not normal that a political scientist would hope that the generals would take charge of a democratic regime, but you would hope that he's being advised by Mattis, by uh, Kelly, by McMaster, all on um, the consequences of what war would actually mean. Um, There are some very bizarre characters surrounding Trump who have very crazy ideas about world order and what needs to be done to remake the world order. And that actually concerns me very much, Um, which is why, yes, I I would hope that in the end they make the decision not to hit North Korea because it it is a concern. Um, Can we rule it out? No. Um, And yeah, and on some levels, I sometimes I worry more a little bit more about Washington and Washington's reaction. But I would hope that um, we know that, for example, this weekend that Trump had a conversation with the new president of South Korea. We have to think that he's in constant uh, or at least some of his people are in contact with um, the Chinese people who also have interests in these areas as well. And as a result of that, that is that is my big hope that there is still some despite the madness in the trump white house that there are still some adults at the table as well as um some countries making their interest in this uh area very very clear stephanie what's china's role in this whole thing you you mentioned earlier that in the uh, security council resolution china did vote in favor of the sanctions it was a unanimous vote which surprised an awful lot of people but it's also commonly known that china does some uh, under the table business with north korea an awful lot of the time. And, and there's some concern about whether uh, China's actually going to walk the walk now that they've talked to talk about sanctions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the whole China-North Korea dimension is, is fascinating and extraordinarily complex. It is very clear to me that Beijing is kind of pulling out its hair with North Korea, saying, would you please knock this off? Uh, but at the same time, again, uh, there's, there's really, I think, two factors that are affecting China's relationship with North Korea. And the first is, again, as I, you know, we talked about earlier, the fact that you have a concern that if the North Korean regime fails, that China is it's going to cost China billions of dollars, that there's going to be waves and waves and waves of migrants. You know, we're concerned about migrants here in, in Canada from uh, the United States. Well, th- that would be nothing, nothing compared to what would happen if, if the regime failed in North Korea. So that's one of the things that China worries about. It wants North Korea to be a stable regime. It has been trying to push it towards certain economic reforms as a result of that. Um, but it hasn't had a huge amount of luck. So, But at the end of the day, it would rather prop up a regime than watch it fail because of its own national security interests. The second thing that I think is driving Chinese um, attitudes towards North Korea is that, um, first of all, North Korea is really the only thing that China has that even is kind of like an ally, other than maybe Pakistan, another kind of interesting nuclear state we can talk about sometime. Um, so there's that aspect of it. And also, um, you know, there's a kind of emotional tie because China uh, helped North Korea in the Korean War, right? And it's seen as Mao's, one of Mao's great achievements that it helped fight off basically the world, because it was the United Nations Command that was fighting that, that, mm-hmm. that battle in the South. So it actually understands, you know, there's an emotional tie there, because uh, it was one of Mao's great so-called achievements that he was, they, they were able to support North Korea in, in keeping its independence. So that's really kind of uh, the, the two different dynamics, I think, that are at play here, and maybe why uh, China sometimes turns a blind eye to its proliferation activities or allows North Koreans uh, fake companies to basically exist on on Chinese soil. 
If, in fact, uh, they continue, and it looks like they are going to continue their program, there's some pictures that were published uh, in, uh, well, I saw them on social media, but they came out of the U.S. press, uh, indicating that uh, North Korea is actually starting to move some of these uh, these missiles around now uh, to, uh, to certain ships and, 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 I guess, spread out their arsenal, such as it is right now. Uh, is, is there a concern that things could ramp up very quickly here from a military standpoint? I think any time that nuclear weapons and missiles are involved, there's always the risk of escalation. Uh, so we shouldn't we shouldn't downplay the threat too too much. And I think you know if North Korea is worried that there are going to be strikes on North Korea as a result of its activities, the first thing it's going to do is try to get its missiles out of there, right? Um, and and it's interesting because um, Donald Trump actually retweeted that Fox News story. Um, and it, well, what was even more interesting is that there was that report on Fox News. Nikki Haley, the ambassador who was on Fox News Sunday, basically refused to talk about it, saying it was classified. And now Trump has retweeted it. So I don't really know what to make of this, but clearly it's something that. But, uh, the but US not not the do. first time though. Not the first time that Trump has actually uh, superseded uh, what his staff have told him about uh, and world issues, especially. Oh God! I mean, <laughs> I mean, there's that. There's the whole. You know, this, it, look, it's the president's prerogative whether he wants to declassify something, but whether or not you want to do that on Twitter is like a whole other um, discussion we could have. Um, but yeah, it, it, that is so. Yeah, I mean, I would say if, if you're North Korea, one, you want to appear as menacing as possible in the wake of sanctions because you've already made these uh, kind of threats. Secondly, you know, you probably want to get your missiles and spread them out if you're worried that. Um, the U.S. is actually going to retaliate in some kind of military way. Um, and, and thirdly, yeah, I mean, you, you kind of want to uh, project power, finally. Um, it, it, you know, if you're North Korea, as much as possible, you want to be that disruptive. You know, North Korea wants to be a disruptive force so it can leverage things at the end of the day. It, it, that's how it sees it, it, it itself going forward. And, and this seems to be one of the ways it, it can actually do that. But but the concern with North Korea is 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 somebody going to do something rash here just to make a political statement and to try to flex their muscle? Uh, I guess we could say the same thing should should be a concern with the, what the U.S. may do. I mean, Trump's retweeting of this uh, uh, kind of information about uh, about military action in North Korea right now. Some are suggesting is is going to be fuel for for justifying what move may come next. And the concern here, obviously is even if there is a military response and it's it's non-nuclear, there's no guarantee that North Korea's response to that, if it happens, is going to be non-nuclear. Yeah, exactly. So I think that there are issues with regards to, I mean, like, again, like with, with this kind of deterrent, one of the most important things you can have is communication, right? You have to make your red lines clear. You have to live up to your red lines. You have to do all these things. And my concern going forward is that the Trump White House, if it's bad at anything, it's communication, right? It's communications are a dumpster fire, uh, to put it mildly. So, I mean, communicating things to North Koreans is really, really hard. And then, you know, and then also, like, I mean, Trump seems to go between different things. On one hand, like, you know, he tweeted earlier this year, North Korea getting nuclear weapons. He said, not going to happen. Well, guess what? It's happened. Um, and then he said, well, China, it's, this is China's responsibility. And China's like, no, um, it's not. <laughs> like, there's only so much we can do here, guys. And please stop putting the onus on us. And then he tweeted, well, I guess China's not going to do it after all. And, you know, so, I mean, there's been this insane Twitter uh, communication from North Korea, which often, again, contradicts the very same things that his own people are saying. So it's hard to know. And that's, I think, where a lot of the danger actually comes from. Um, just not really being sure 
where Trump is uh, on on these issues. And when that comes to nuclear weapons, that's never a good thing. It is. Uh, we'll have to leave it at that and see just how the uh, president and, of course, uh, North Korea respond to this. Stephanie, thanks as always. Great talking to you again today. Thank you. I'm going to go back to building my shelter now. There you go. Please <laughs> stock it up now. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, we are all aging. Uh, we as a society are certainly aging. Uh, you know, the boomers are becoming senior citizens, becoming retirees. And uh, you could be in for some sticker shock when you start looking around to decide where you're going to spend your golden years. Uh, simply because of the cost of retirement homes these days. A story in the Toronto Star over the weekend, I think, opened a lot of people's eyes to this. Retirement home rents have soared over the last number of years with the baby boomer generation reaching retirement age. And uh, it's a problem that just may be getting worse before it gets any better. Joining us to talk about this is Anthony Quinn, Director of Community Affairs with the Canadian Association of Retired Persons. Anthony, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. Good to be with you. Well, this one, this is this is a problem. This is an issue that is probably under most people's radar right now until they finally come to this point in their lives, or their parents do, or somebody in their family does, and you start looking at these numbers. Uh, the, the, I, the first word that comes to mind when I look at how much it costs for, for people to live in situations like this is outrageous, Anthony. The numbers here are ridiculous. I think your point is well made, Bill, that people haven't thought about these these costs and planning ahead. The, la- the latest stat I've seen is that 67% of Canadians have no plans to cover costs for assisted living or long-term care. So we're looking at almost 70% of Canadians who haven't thought about it in the first place. Now, I know there are people that are going to be listening to this and say, yeah, but you know what? We've already talked about this, and we're simply going to stay in our house. It's paid for, etc. And that may be the plan for a lot of people, but you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, circumstances, financial and, and, and physical, uh, could change, and that, that alters everything. That, that's right, Bill. About 80% of Canadians as they age will continue to live in a private residence. But for that 20%, and it, that 20% is a growing number as the, as the baby boomers are coming through, they're going to have to deal with these expensive costs. And, of course, you don't know what that's going to entail and, and what kind of care and what kind of residence in which you're going to live. I mean, we, you know, we've talked about things like assisted living facilities. We've talked about long-term care facilities. Uh, sometimes people just want a roof over their head and maybe a couple of meals a day, et cetera. And there are facilities that offer this. But, uh, you know, let's, let's talk about numbers. And uh, the one that jumped out at me, Anthony, was in the Toronto Star story t- over the weekend. Uh, And this is in the GTA, and we understand that prices in Toronto traditionally are usually higher than they are in many other cities in the province. But they say the average monthly rent for a facility like this is about $5,000. That's staggering. It's expensive, and Ontario does have the highest cost across the country. But these facilities come with meal plans and their activities and their recreational facilities. So it's an all-inclusive price, but... It, there is some sticker shock when you're looking at $6,000 plus. And, and again, you know, Hamilton is a little less expensive, and then further down Niagara Way, and then there are other places, of course, where, but you're still looking at maybe two to 3000 bucks a month for something like this. And I get that. The selling feature, obviously, you're right, Anthony, is this is all-inclusive. It's got all or most of the amenities that I guess people would be looking for in a situation like this. But it begs the question, how do people afford it? Well, the aging in place, I think, is what Canadians tell us that they want to do. And as they age, and if you, if you get to the, the age where you need some assistance with your activities of daily living, you need help getting dressed or you need help bathing, people can come into your homes out of your own pocket to help pay for those costs. But if you get into the uh, situation where you need 
longer longer care or, or assisted living in in a home, then those costs increase as well. So you could be in something like a Schlegel Villages where it's two or three thousand dollars, but you may have an extra thousand dollars or two thousand dollars a month worth of care added on to your living expenses. By the way, we should ask, uh, which I guess is the most relevant question here, when we start talking about prices, uh, many of these facilities, of course, are, are private businesses. They are enterprises, and we understand that, you know, there's nothing wrong with making a profit. You know, we all uh, have to do something for a living. We get that. But there are there any regulations? Is there any, any board, any agency that sets parameters, or, or can these uh, facilities pretty much set their own prices? I don't have the answer to that, Bill, but I know that when it comes to long-term care facilities, the government, the province of Ontario, does offset the cost. Yeah, there's some subsidies there, so they have some say in that. Yeah, but a company like Rivera, for example, they're owned by the public sector pension plan. So it's uh, an investment, and they are out to make money for the retirees of the public sector. So they are for-profit businesses, and they are offering products and services to a growing market. And I think that, you know, that's private business, and that's that's what those businesses do. But it's not for everyone, for sure. Absolutely not. And we've talked about, certainly, the housing problems and, and the housing circumstance uh, here in Ontario over the last couple of months now uh, because of, uh, of, of what's been going on and rising prices. It's certainly going to impact retirement facilities, too, isn't it? When you look at this, Anthony, I mean, it's really a matter of supply and demand. It, it is for sure, and I'm looking at the, the income for Canadians who are retired. With uh, CPP and old age security, you get about $1,200 a month from the government if you max out, and if you have GIS, then you can get close to $2,000 a month. So when we're looking at costs of 6000 plus per month, and the only income perhaps for, for these retirees is $2,000 without a, a substantial savings or equity in a home that they can turn into cash, that can be a real issue for lower-income Canadians. Well, again, the other statistic that jumps out here is I think it's about 73% of Canadians don't have a pension plan of any nature, so they're relying on those pensions and those uh, programs that you just talked about. Uh, I guess a lot of people try to put a few bucks away, but, boy, you're going to run through that pretty quickly if you're going to be paying three, four, five thousand 5000 bucks a month just to, place, uh, to put a roof over your head. Yeah, I think that's the message for those of us in our 40s and 50s who are just starting to think about the future. Maybe we have aging parents that we really do have to have some careful planning and preparation. There are savings plans, there's home equity, and, and there's long-term, uh, long-term care insurance plans that you could look at as well. But I think uh, those of us who are looking at it, thinking it's way down the road, have to start planning financially for it. these potential inevitabilities. Well, here's uh, the star story, I think, was quite insightful and, and, and very educational, I think, when you started to, uh, to look at some of the numbers here. Uh, the supply of seniors' housing grew by about 2.4% in the last year, uh, which is interesting, but the 75-plus uh, demographic uh, it grows by more than that, almost 3%. So, in other words, we're aging faster than they can build facilities for people that may need these sorts of facilities. Uh, that We're not in a crisis situation yet, but, boy, you can see it on the horizon if we don't start acting on this. Yeah, and, and if we continue to to get older as a demographic, to live longer, the number of centenarians and those over 80 and 90 continue to grow, that's when we get into the conditions where we need assisted living facilities because you know, once you get to 85 plus, for example, your chances of needing assisted care go up exponentially once you get over 90, even more, more like that. So as we continue to age, the needs will continue to increase for sure. Yeah, that's the old good news, bad news situation, isn't it? The good news is, hey, we're living longer because of medical achievements and, and things that have happened. 
Uh, the bad news is it's going to cost more the older you get. And, and of course, the, the, the problem with that is that we're not making as much money. I mean, there aren't very many people, 75-plus, that still have a regular income stream. Uh, or certainly not the kind of income they probably had when they were 35 or 40. No, and if you happen to have a home and you sell the you sell your home, you have some equity, that next 25 years of living on a fixed income has to be planned out carefully. You don't know how long you're going to live and how much it's going to cost you to get you to the end. Well, and the decisions we make now are obviously going to have an impact on this. I mean, I, I know that there are some people that do uh, still, you know, in home ownership, but they still own houses. Uh, but, you know, with the reverse mortgages and a number of other things, I mean, I know other parents, and I'm sure you've talked with many uh, folks in the Association of Retired Persons, Anthony, that, that are in situations where they've had to take out second mortgages on their house, maybe help out their kids because of some financial problems, which puts a bigger financial burden on them. But that's really, that's reducing that that that, that pot of money, that pot of money that they were counting on for their retirement. Uh, and that's going to be problematic for them when they get to that age. Well, there are those in their in their 40s right now who are the sandwich generation who are helping their parents to pay for some of those costs at the same time helping their children to pay for school. So it goes both ways where the pot, uh, the nest egg for the retiree may be dwindling faster than they expected and they're relying on their own children to help with that. But there are there are other options. There's, there's co-housing that's, that's a growing uh, option for, for seniors living that golden girls lifestyle and sharing the costs and sharing meal plans. And I think the, the province continues to build and, and a address the long-term care issues, and I'm looking forward to the inquiry that they've, they've announced now. We can get to some of the issues yeah. around long-term care. Absolutely, uh, because of the tragedy, of course, that occurred uh, in Woodstock in London, Ontario, and that trial that just finished up a couple of months ago. Uh, that certainly spurred the government to, to move into action like this. And this is really part of the, the bigger uh, situation and subject about, about affordable housing. I know that, that when we talk about affordable housing, and thankfully, again, politicians are starting to put that into some of their uh, their speeches, and we're starting to see some action, not as much as we'd like to see, but invariably we start to think about low-income families, and, and that's certainly an important part of this. But the other end of that age spectrum certainly has to play into this as well. Affordable housing also means people plus 65 that are, that are going to need some place. For sure. And, and we've heard from a number of uh, seniors living usually alone in apartments across the country where they have higher than market rent increases. And that really does force them out, and then the landlords can put in a higher rent with a younger family who has you know, a, growing, a growing income level. So that, that kind of protections for seniors who do want to age in place but are being forced out by landlords, particularly in low-income low housing, that's uh, another issue CARP is keeping an eye on. Maybe talk to us a little bit about your organization uh, that uh, some, I'm sure many of our listeners, frankly, probably may not be too familiar with, about, about the Canadian Association of Retired Persons, uh, what, what you do, how you advocate for people, the members of, of your group. Yeah, well, we have 300,000 members across Canada, so it's a very large voice. And what we do is ensure that in policy matters and in, in governance in provinces and federally, that they are paying attention to the older demographic as they're making their plans. So we're advocating on behalf of age discrimination and ensuring that the marketplace serves Canadians as they're aging, that policies to protect pension plans and protect uh, health care services for seniors are on the agenda of the government. So we're meeting with provincial and federal leaders, and we get our members to do the same thing. We want them to be active and engaged in the political process and keep the politicians beat to the fire. It's a, it's a voice that that 
is being heard these days, too, and we've already seen some action on, on some items. Retirement age comes to mind. I mean, you know, we, we're talking about the post-65 uh, generation and those folks that, that may be facing some of the challenges that are outlined in this report. I mean, there was a time not too many years ago where the, many of them would have been forced into retirement at age 65. At least they have that option now. If they want to continue to work, they can do so. Uh, and hopefully that'll uh, try to fatten that nest egg that they're trying to set aside for retirement, to at least put off some of those concerns and some of those challenges until later on. Yeah, CARP is very active on both of those files in getting the the age of uh, retirement rolled back from 67 to 65 under under the Prime Minister Harper's government, and we were happy to see that those changes. But people don't want to be told when they have to retire, and they actually, frankly, can't retire the same way they used to. It they they know they're going to be living longer. They want to stay engaged. So, forcing people out of the workplace just seemed very retrograde, and we're glad that those changes were made. But the fact that they're living longer uh, is a reason why they need to stay engaged in the workforce. What about supply? We talked about supply and demand and, and the fact that, that we're aging faster than they can build facilities since most of these are, I guess most all of them, I guess, are in the private sector and, and developments in that era. Is, is that message getting on, Anthony, that, that we need more housing stock for, for that demographic and for that age group? I think there's, there's two views on that, and, and the, the focus on home care, I think, especially in Ontario, has been something very positive, and the investment in home care. So if we can keep people in their homes longer and well cared for and living in dignity, that's the type of care, I think, that will prevent the need for building housing stock that will only be needed for a short period of time relatively as the baby boomers come through. But helping people to age in place with programs, with facilities, with staff that can help someone to live with dignity in their homes. I think that's really something to focus on rather than building housing stock for a a short five or ten year wave of people coming through. Well, and therein lies the concern uh, because obviously you want to make sure that there's enough stock like this, but I I don't know too many seniors at all that have reached 65, 70, or 75 plus really at this stage that would not want to be in their homes. I mean, that's, that's that's their environment. That's their place. And, and as long as they can stay there. But the other phenomena that I'm starting to hear an awful lot about, and I think they referenced it here in the article in the Toronto Star this past weekend, are, are seniors that move back in with their families uh, upon retirement. Maybe if they had a house, they sell the house, or whatever the case might be, uh, basement apartments, things of this nature, where you've got blended families now with, uh, with uh, somebody, maybe one of their sons or daughters, owning the house with their family, and, and mom and pop or whoever it is living in a basement apartment. Yeah, the multi-generational family, I think, may be coming back into vogue as uh, necessity dictates. I've also heard something similar in the LGBT community where older LGBT uh, retirees are, are sharing homes with, with younger LGBT because they don't have the, the traditional family that others uh, have had with their own children or grandchildren. So th- those kind of multi-generational families, whatever they look like, or multi-generational housing is another way to combat the, the lack of space for seniors as they're getting older. It's, uh, it's interesting how we tend to, uh, to, to compromise and to try to come and be innovative, I guess, really, uh, to, dry, to deal with these sorts of situations. I was talking, obviously, over the last number of weeks with real estate agents about the, the, the concerns and the challenges uh, with real estate here in Ontario, and, and they were telling me that that's a phenomenon that they're seeing more and more right now, as you say, with multi-generational families uh, buying houses. Uh, and as a matter of fact, obviously, the seniors in the, in the group may be the ones that can actually help with the down payment. And as a result, you've got everybody living in one environment like that. That's, uh, I guess, part of the goal here 
is, is to make sure, what did you say, about 20%, I guess, of seniors uh, that may be inclined to move towards retirement homes or other facilities like this. If that number starts getting bigger, we've got a problem. But if you can keep it around 20 21%, something like that, it sounds as if we can probably accommodate this within the existing structures as long as we maintain what we have. Well, I think so. The long-term care uh, homes, we found there was a sudden study last month by the Kaihai folks, and they said that one in five Canadians in long-term care didn't need to be there. So they've sort of defaulted into long-term care based on having no other option. So that's one thing to look at. And then I think we want to focus on ensuring that, you know, every every person in, let's imagine that most people today have a home or somewhere where they live. If we can continue to keep them in that place until such time that they are actual candidates for assisted living or long-term care, I think we we can look comfortably ahead and say we have the stock in place. And for those big companies like Chartwell and Rivera that are offering these all bells and whistles, there's going to be a market for those as well. Well, and there, you've got to make sure that there's going to be some choice and some variety uh, with these homes. And, you know, price is one thing, and and obviously you're going to weigh that against the amenities that are offered in that. But you've got to make sure that uh, depending on the individual's uh, lifestyle and certainly what their financial wherewithal is, that there's going to be something there for them. Not everybody can afford in the GTA $5,000 a month, and you want to make sure that that uh, you know that there's uh, there's something that just maybe half that price if that's all they can afford and I'm not sure we're there yet. Now, they, I, I hate to suggest that. Well, let's get the government in here and start regulating that because that can be problematic in and of itself. But uh, but there's got to be some some adjustments, I guess, to make sure that there's going to be stuff that's going to be affordable for just about everybody. Because not everybody, as you know, uh, talking to your members, Anthony, not everybody can afford five thousand bucks a month. They just don't have that financial resource to do that. No, definitely. And I think I agree with you about the the government intervention, but we do want to ensure that the marketplace uh, serves the seniors. And and hopefully as this this demographic comes through the the market, that there will be companies that are offering affordable care options. You know, the the full country club lifestyle may not be the necessity, but having visiting care or having uh, access to to bathing and dressing care, those types of things in an affordable an affordable location and without having to move out into the, the full uh, suburban or uh, rural landscape to, uh, to afford it. Well, stars like the star and hopefully conversations like you and I are having right now will uh, uh, force that conversation and be a catalyst for the sorts of changes that have to happen. Anthony, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. It's greatly appreciated. Good to talk to you, Bill. Take care now. That's Anthony Quinn, Director of Community Affairs with the Canadian Association of Retired Persons. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.